Coming to you from Silicon Valley, I'm Marcus Edwards, and I'm on the hunt for recruiting leaders, producers, innovators, and pioneers who've made their mark on the industry and can't wait to share their points of view. We'll tackle the tough topics and dig deep to find the answers you're looking for and some actionable advice you can take to the bank. So stick around and stay tuned, and welcome to Recruiting Trailblazers. So I'm very excited today to welcome my guest, Simon Mullins, leads the Executive Search Information Exchange, or ESICS, which is the world's leading independent information source for corporate executive recruiting leaders. He's managed exec search from the outside at Corn Ferry and on the inside at Microsoft. He led one of the most advanced internal corporate executive recruiting functions, as well as its largest experienced hire staffing group. He recently published a book on strategy, tactics, and tools for hiring organizations called Leadership Recruiting with co-author David Lord. And one other career highlight that I'd like to mention is that Simon and I worked together at the same company in London at the very beginning of our careers just a few years ago. And we reconnected actually a couple of years ago through LinkedIn. So welcome to the 100th episode of Recruiting Trailblazers, Simon Mullins. Wow. Thank you very much for that fantastic introduction. And I couldn't believe I'm at the 100th. I, I feel honored. Thank you. Well, I've been saving it for you, mate. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. And yes, I remember you, you were like two years old when we started there. So for you, yeah. you, were, you, know, <laughs> you were much younger than I was. Didn't we? I mean, it is a long time ago. We don't need to say how long ago, but it is a long time ago that we worked together. But we didn't just work together. I believe we sat next to each other. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a full bullpen operation for those folks who remember those days. Yeah, we were rubbing elbows. Mm-hmm. Index cards, the whole lot. Yeah, the one little computer in the corner that no one understood how to use. <laughs> and we would just use those pieces of paper and everyone yeah. would throw their phones down when we got a contract. Yeah, that was... Mm. I talk about those stories and all these folks who are you know, less than 50 years old um, are uh, thinking, yeah, that sounds archaic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was fun though. I mean, it's, obviously, you always look back at your youth and think that was fun, but it was it was a team sport. We had a lot of fun, and we usually ended up going to the pub afterwards. I think, yeah, exactly. Yeah, very so, much a London thing in those days. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and and those folks are still floating around doing great things. And you've had an incredible career since then. You've been all over the world, as I mentioned. You worked for Corn Ferry, and you were a leader at Microsoft as well. So, um, congrats on all of that, Simon. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I got to work in Hong Kong for a couple of years and Boston for a couple of years, California for five, and now I'm up near Seattle for the last uh, 18 years now. Yeah, fantastic. So I thought it would be good to set the scene by discussing one of the first principles that you address in the book, Leadership Recruiting, which is the case for managing search activity. You state that when a search is unmanaged, four out of 10 of those searches fail, and the average length of each search is usually around six months or more. Now, what do you mean by unmanaged? Is that just like when people post a job and hope for the best? No, it is actually all about, in most cases, it's about using search firms uh, in in that scenario. Uh, now, of course, we write much more about doing direct hiring, but in the, what you're describing is in the case where, and this still happens around the world, but it used to happen a lot more in the past, where you'd have a, a business leader, or in some cases, a head of HR, uh, or somebody else who's not dedicated to the space. And they'll just go off and say, hey, uh, we need a new whatever, CFO or leader of whatever business. And they'll um, engage a search firm 
and say, hey, search firm, go at it. Off you go. And not to criticize the search firm, don't, don't get me wrong. Search firms are not in the wrong here. It's actually the corporate function that's in the wrong or the corporate entity that's in the wrong, in my opinion. Um, and when they do that, they'll go off and say, hey, go for it and go do it. But the search firm then has to, or the recruiting organization has to externally, has to uh, flay it around, trying to get schedules together, trying to get proper data together, um, trying to get the right leadership involved and the right decision makers involved. And it can, well, it actually, our data tells us it's 40% longer if it's not managed properly. So it's not like one has to have a huge team uh, in-house at all. It's, it's literally that one has to be on top of it and quite honestly coercing or uh, corralling the internal leaders, decision makers, whatever, as well as compensation, all that has to come together um, for what is a, usually a very critical hire. And it, to be clear, these still take 110 days on average or somewhere between 100 and 120 days. On average, for the average exec search, for the executive search, yeah. yeah, and that's when they're managed properly, and that's whether in-house or, or not in-house, uh, so direct hire or such. So you can see it's still long, regardless. You know, we do an annual benchmark survey; we've done one for twenty years or so, and it's still a long period of time. It's become faster in the last couple of years, and uh, the less managed it is, probably the longer it takes because none long. of those sort of like process points are in place and, and you're probably just working reactively and waiting for resumes to arrive and then thinking, well, what do we do now? And exactly. And so and so what you're saying is you really have to set up a proper management infrastructure of each search, even if it's been done internally. But we're talking right now about doing it externally, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even if it's got an in-house team. Yeah. But either way, even if you have an in-house team managing a search firm, you've got to do a problem. Yeah. 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 In the book, you make a, a compelling revenue case for the management of search activity based on the revenue boost that companies enjoy when the executive positions in question are filled, you know, in a timely fashion. Um, are, are there any other sort of like key factors in the case for managing search activity that we haven't touched on yet? Well, yeah, uh, unfortunately, and, and um, it's not, to, again, not to be critical of anybody, but most search, uh, sorry, most in-house teams get created uh, because somebody, probably head of HR, but others perhaps, say, oh, yeah, we could save so many millions in executive search fees if we have our own team, uh, which is probably valid. In fact, it usually is valid. And uh, however, that's not we've never believed that's the reason to start this kind of a function. But it is a truism, probably, uh, that one can if one does direct searches uh, with one's own team over time, you build a capability, strength, muscle, whatever. And you can save quite a lot of millions of pounds or dollars or whatever it might be, euros, I suppose. Um, having said that, that's not, in our opinion, the reason one should do this. The reason one should do this is more about the intangibles. One gets, well, actually, frankly, it's much better and stronger succession planning, external, what we call ESP, external succession planning. Uh, probably a better quality of uh, talent coming in because we know as a, as a business, as a function, we know the organization better. Um, and therefore, probably higher quality of candidates. But so, it, uh, but quite frankly, the, probably the highest value is external talent knowledge, competitive intelligence, talent intelligence, which not just helps the recruiting function or the HR function, but honestly it helps the business to do better uh, as well. And that's very hard to measure, which is why people go to, hey, how many how many uh, millions of dollars have we saved in search fees? Because that's easier to measure, and I get that. Um, or even the um, you know, uh, even if we say we'll do the search and this is what it would have cost on the outside. So therefore, this is how much you're saving either way around, whichever you choose. Um, but that's a bit of a short term sort of view 
when you start measuring up against like the quality of the candidates and the process that executive search firms have honed over over the many years that they've been doing this. And I think, you know, building your own internal executive search function is not particularly easy because I've read the book and, that, and there are so many moving parts to getting this right um, that cost avoidance, which is what you call it in the book, isn't necessarily the best reason to do it, right? No, exactly. And there are a lot of moving yeah. parts. And one, frankly, the, probably the most important thing is to get sponsorship. You, to do this right, to, and then again, I know we'll probably go into this more, but to build such a function, one needs sponsorship over a long period of time. It's not a short, as you say, it's not a short-term result. It, the, the best value from this takes one, two, three, four, five years uh, to get some significant return. And it's worth it, to be clear. And you know, I was lucky enough to be in relatively early, uh, and you mentioned Microsoft, uh, and this is now 2004, 2003, when they first set this up. So you know that's almost 20 years yeah. ago, right? Uh, and so, and we can't imagine how much value they've got out of that kind of a function subsequently. Yeah. I mean, what does the landscape look like nowadays? Because back to when me and you sat next to each other, um, <laughs> there were no companies with internal recruiting functions. And that's why the job was so easy back then. But <laughs> <laughs> um, what does the landscape look like nowadays from an internal recruiting function? It seems like it's just exploded over the last sort of five or six years. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll target the leadership recruiting because I know that slightly better. But uh, quite honestly, it's far to understand, across the board, recruiting functions are now uh, being built everywhere in the world. And it, it seemed to be, and I'm probably going to offend somebody, but it seemed to be most of these things were being built US headquartered companies and other places was kind of coming along, uh, coming along five years after that. Um, but it's now, it's now uh, across the board, everywhere in the world, people are doing this kind of thing. But to, sorry, to talk about leadership thing, um, probably in the last... Well, they've always been building these things, but uh, since this started, this group started, which is 26 years ago, uh, it was usually top 500, top 200 type of companies. So Fortune 200, Global 200, whatever you might say. So the biggest organizations, and they're the ones who both had the, probably uh, the strategy, the foresight, but quite frankly, the cash, honestly, to invest in this kind of a thing and the volume. Uh, you touched on earlier, um, you know, how, what kind of scale does one need to be to build this kind of an in-house function? And honestly, unless one's doing a good 20-plus senior, very senior searches a year, it's probably not worth it uh, to, to dedicate resources and headcount to these kind of things. But so one's got to be decent size to get a function just dedicated to that. Just dedicated to executive search. Yeah, what, what kind of size company are we talking about? So when they were doing this, uh, well, when they were first doing this, it was, it was let's say, Fortune 200, so the 20, 40, $50 billion-plus organizations. Um, and the founding group, uh, very large organizations, are still with us, American Express, IBM, a few others. Uh, they're still there, so they've been doing this for a long, long time. Having said that, and that was for my, uh, my predecessor, David Lord, when he built this. But now, and this is where I was going, now the idea of uh, critical talent so let me back up, sorry. The idea of using what we would use to call the executive recruiting process for bringing in critical talent, senior leadership talent, is being used across the board. So we've got unicorns in the membership now. We have roughly 110 organizations who are members. Uh, still, the majority of them are global Fortune 500, 200, 100 companies. Uh, but a large chunk are also uh, private equity-backed firms, uh, smaller um, uh, what we call unicorn or, you know, those billion dollar, two billion dollar, which is still not, not insignificant, but not mammoth. Um, because people are looking at this as a way of, or a methodology, really. That's why, actually why we call the books leadership recruiting as opposed to executive recruiting. 
People look at executive recruiting as chief executive officer, chief finance officer, chief whatever. Whereas leadership recruiting are finding the leaders whatever, whatever level. And that's why we look at this as a methodology more than we look at it as a level or a strata, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So you, you're supporting at E6, you're supporting 110 of these organizations and they vary uh, considerably in size. Um, but just give E6 a plug here for a second and just tell us what exactly you can expect when you join E6 and what membership involves and, and what kind of benefits you get. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, well, we've, as I said, we've been around 26 years uh, this group E6. Some people call it Essex. I, I can't, coming from the UK. It doesn't quite resonate for me. But So E6 works for me, but that's okay. We, we'll answer to whatever people want to call us. But yeah, we've been around for, as I say, 26 years. Um, well, more, actually. Uh, we've had 110 organizations. We have 110 organizations who are members. We've met as, as a member group more than 400 times uh, over that period of time. And we create um, research. We create tools. We create networking uh, community uh, and, peer, and peer networking actually at leadership level for those organizations. And that's what they, that's what they really come together uh, to do uh, is to connect, learn, build uh, they, as an individual leader, but also as part of their team growth. So they're sending their teams to meetings to learn from each other. We have mentor meetings, we have training classes. So it's a very niche space, as you can imagine. It's not exactly mammoth relative to staffing, which is a multi-hundred billion dollar uh, industry executive recruiting is still 16 18 billion dollars as an external industry um but it's it's a fraction of the bigger recruiting function still saying that it's what we do for them so and they seem to enjoy it they come back nine out of ten times they come back every year and so you're, you're teaching them everything from the, the tools the strategies um is there a consistency in some of the sort of aha moments they have or the the misunderstandings that they had before they joined the organization and, and what they'd learn when they first joined E6? You know, it's a great question. I don't know if there's a consistency. I mean, we have different stages and sometimes even the biggest, and to be clear, I'm not teaching per se. We teach some classes, but they're honestly learning much from each other, if not more from each other, uh, because yeah. each of them has got through different experiences. And this is something that people ask a lot. You know, Okay, what's the best in class uh, function? Who, who's doing it the best in the world? And this isn't really answering your question, but I'll come back to it, around to it. Um, what does best in class mean depends on the person or the company or the organization that we're talking to. So some are amazing at knowing their internal leadership talent and comparing that to external leadership talent. They just have an incredibly tied internal and external succession program. That's fantastic. But they're not so good at what others are good at, where they really know the external talent. They track every leader that goes changing contract, every leader that's moving. So they have an external talent intelligence function, which is fantastic, but that organization may not know their internal talent as well. Or others may be really, really good at building uh, both interview guides plus assessment functions, assessment modules, uh, so that their internal leaders are, are amazing at bringing in exactly the right talent, but they're not so good at external understanding or they're not so good at internal movement, or whatever it might be. So different things, different uh, places, uh, so to be honest with you, different organizations have different skills and scales uh, and abilities, I should say. Um, they, they, uh, but one, what happens mostly is when somebody says, I've just started at this company, I'm a team of one, what do I do now? <laughs> and we say, hey, you talk to these 10 people who are members who've just done that same thing in the last year or two years, and they're now scaling and they're bringing on their research person, they're bringing on their executive recruiter, they're bringing on their 
uh, coordinator and talk to them about how they're building that function, how they're motivating, how they're creating job descriptions, uh, what compensation they're paying, those kinds of things. And that's how we, that's how we help our members is because there's out of that 110 plus the hundreds that we've known over the years, there's always somebody who's done what you're about to do. Uh, you know, which are great, which are the best assessment tools or who's using what CRM or whatever it might be. Yeah. That's what the breadth, probably the greatest value is. And that's how we can help them. Or you could just give them the book and say, read that and then come back if you have any other questions. <laughs> we could do that. It's all, it's all in the book. Exactly. It's all in the book. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, a, that, that's what we kind of did. You know, the, this is going to sound a wee bit crass, but the membership is the highest cost to be clear. That depends on your subscription. That's great. Um, and they, but they get a lot of value and people say people have been coming back for decades. Lovely. Uh, they can also take a training class. That's a much lower cost, but that gives them a smattering. It won't give them the connection, but it will give them a smattering of overview. And the cheapest cost, as it were, uh, or the lowest price, I should say, is buying the book. You know, it's, it's, it's a few dollars, but it gives them at least a basis. Um, and that's why we did it. It's like a, I mean, again, it sounds a bit glib, but it's like kind of democratizing the function that we did. Yeah. So it really is. I mean, you're at a high level. You're you're managing a community of internal yes. search leaders, um, and it's all internal search leaders. It's not people from the executive search world as well. Yeah, exactly. It's all corporate. Uh, we are completely independent. That's one thing we're super stringent about. Totally independent. No one pays us any money except for the members. Uh, no search firm, research firm, software company, vendor. None of that uh, pays us anything at all. We'll have them as long as guests sometimes when we think it's useful for the members or the members ask us to, uh, but we never take any money. I won't even take coffee from them. Um, and not, so you're saying I, you won't shill for the industry. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> exactly right. And we're super, I mean, I know we're probably being foolish and then perhaps we're even leaving money on the table, but that's the way we are. And partly because, again, we've done this benchmark survey for 20 years. We couldn't say, hey, members recommend this. Oh, and by the way, 10% discount if you buy this product from this company over here, yeah, that, that doesn't work for us. So it's Yeah, I mean, I, I think I understand where you're coming from in that, but I don't, there's nothing wrong with like introducing a vendor or a tool and saying this person's going to come and make a presentation and you can make your own mind up on that. That's exactly right. And that's the great thing because, yeah, I mean, we'll have them come along. We'll have a, we'll have, we've had panels of, of software companies. We've had panels of search companies. We've had a couple of research companies that'll come along uh, with their, with our members, actually, and they'll talk about special projects they've done together and it adds value to that conversation rather than just making it a pitch. And it's never a pitch. I mean, everyone knows whomever talks to our audience, they know that it, if it's going to make it a sales pitch, it's not going to work. It doesn't, doesn't resonate. Uh, it's more about a learning opportunity, uh, which happens to have uh, a company name on the bottom of the PowerPoint. Yeah. Now, now you've obviously worked on the inside and the outside, as I mentioned at the beginning in the introduction. Um, does the process, does the recruiting process, the culture, I mean, the way that the job's done differ very much from when you did it externally to when you did it internally? Well, yes and no. So there's, there's um, one of the biggest learning lessons, as it were, uh, for me, uh, or lessons, I should say, was you, I came from, the, from Corn Ferry. Corn Ferry, as uh, most of your listeners probably know, you know, the biggest search firm in the world, a billion, but I don't know how many dollars now, but a billion plus of but they're really big public company excellent and as a search consultant or a partner in that firm one is at the pointy end of the business uh, as they say so you are literally the revenue generating everything's about you as the person who's building revenue dealing with the clients um, you know keeping the business going one goes inside 
uh, and these are not the reasons I went inside, but uh, one goes inside uh, and it's completely different. Uh, one goes into a corporate and the, the cynic in me would say, suddenly you're at the very, very bottom of the stack when it comes to uh, the business and revenue and uh, uh, costs and budgets and everything else. Now, that may not be true in some cultures. And I'm not, I'm not saying it was true in the culture I went into at Microsoft. But you're not selling. You're not building the primary product. You're not at the front end. You're delivering an incredible service. But you're not the reason that company is in existence. Right. Right. You know? You're not on the business development end of the stick. You're on exactly. the fulfillment end of the stick inside or under the umbrella of recruiting. But I think yeah. some, I think that's changing a little bit in terms yes. of how recruiting and probably especially executive level recruiting is touching the business and impacting all the other parts of the business. Yeah. And I've often thought that every company should probably have a chief hiring officer because People are growth, right? And so it, it needs to be prioritized and there needs to be strategy and process put in place in order to, you know, attract and accommodate and build a culture around, you know, the attraction of those people and, and the delivery and the process involved, right? Yeah. Well, well you know, we've, we've all heard, especially in the HR and recruiting space, uh, all the, the, in my opinion, that used to be some of them empty words. Oh, yes, people are, are so important to us and People are the future of the lifeblood of the company, whatever. And that was all very nice, but there was no real meat behind it. And I'll come back to that in a second. Whereas now, I think this is what you're referencing now, of course, subsequent to the problems we've had in the last two or three years, all sorts of different challenges we've had as a, um, you know, everywhere in the world, frankly. Um, and now, of course, even more so, uh, with, with whatever one wants to call it, the great reshuffle, the great resignation, a lot more senior leaders are looking at talent as a key critical business uh, challenge. And I think some of those words they've been saying for the last however long are actually holding some weight. And you're right. And some cultures, some organizations, I, I lucked into an amazing culture at Microsoft where the CEO and the founder, so Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, were both super invested and the board and everyone, in fact, at the senior leadership level, super invested in talent. They knew that without the, 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 the lifeblood, literally, like the organization wouldn't go forward. It wouldn't continue to innovate, which is critical. And that, I think, is a techie industry thing in particular, but I think it's also now pervasive across all of, uh, or at least many other industries. Um, and so that, I lucked into that culture. So they were prepared to, uh, honestly, the CEO was the chief hiring officer. We used to go on uh, trips to California. Of course, we were both up in Seattle. We used to go on trips to California. He'd sit down and meet folks, just sit down for the day and, and meet talent in uh, coffee shops or whatever it was. Um, and he almost was the chief hiring officer uh, on that level. Um, super invested. We reported to the CEO. Uh, we didn't report to the CEO. What I mean is we literally sent reports to the CEO every month uh, on what was going on. And that was that culture 20 years ago. I think there are many organizations now moving in that direction. Now, I know you're describing an actual role, but honestly, I think it's frankly the CEO's job to be the chief hiring officer. Right. Yeah, definitely to fly the flag. And, and responsible for building a culture that attracts people because we all know that, you know, cultures, as I've always said on this podcast, the biggest mover of people these days. And um, if you don't have a great culture, people are going to be moving out more than they're moving in. Yeah. Um, I think Bill Gates said something like, <clears throat> there's a quote that I'm familiar with, something like the value of your company walks out of the office every night at 5.30. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. So he was obviously well on board. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So, so when you're building um, an internal function, what do you say to the question of 
what are the biggest mistakes? What, what do we need to avoid when we're building a successful function internally? And, you know, how can we get this thing off the ground as quickly as possible? Yeah, that's, uh, well, I don't know if we talk about, we don't focus on mistakes. Maybe we focus on collective wisdom. So that's you know, the other way, uh, where people have learned and they would should they should have done it differently. I think that comes up. Um, so, uh, you know, what we would have, for instance, is people will tell us, uh, that stay small. So if you're going to do something like this, uh, like build a function, which is targeting senior leaders or executives or leadership or whatever you want to say, the ideal is to stay small, um, do it like a pilot, uh, perhaps uh, do it on a few roles, uh, not, not hugely, because if one, if one says, I'm going to cover all these leadership roles, uh, uh, and you can't because you don't have resources or you don't have, uh, all the buy-in from everybody, uh, then it's just going to go down in flames, which is not necessarily a good thing. So the ideal is to start small, perhaps do a couple of key roles or work with one business only um, and have them um, support you and be your kind of poster child along the way, uh, for instance. Uh, and that's probably the best thing. And then the other is, and some would say, uh, to uh, target only those areas. Uh, and this is this is somewhat controversial because some people would say differently but uh target somewhat easy searches and i know this i shouldn't be saying this because i'm kind of giving away the secret source but only target easy searches and leave the search firms to do the hard ones now i wouldn't necessarily agree with that uh but that is yeah. what some people would say uh because then at least we can do our best work we can get them done quickly and that can prove value and prove worth and over time uh, we can buy oh sorry we can build uh, a function that can do more different difficult things now saying that We've got one of our members who, contrary, uh, contrarily, will argue with me, um, and not that he's contrary, lovely man, but uh, he would argue with that and say, actually, we started our models because by completely focusing on the toughest, the hardest searches that hadn't um, basically had been failing for the last 12 months, whatever it is. And so he recommends you do it the other way, uh, which, is, which is great too. Um, but most folks, I think, uh, would say start small, go for easier the ideal also is to uh, give oversight, whether it's using search firms and running the kind of a procurement operation or whether it's building an in-house team, but give oath, oversight to one senior person uh, who's got both the uh, the ability to gain, uh, or sort of say, to the ability of kind of the ear of the senior leaders and the HR leaders and so on, but also senior enough to have some weight behind them when they need to get sponsorship and support and funding and everything else for growth. Um, of course, the critical, I mean, this is frankly, I could be talking about anything, right? Succession planning, any major HR project, get metrics, start measuring things, start measuring quality, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, there are many different things that people say, but uh, those kinds of things are what they talk about. And you said the word buy-in or the phrase buy-in a couple of times. It strikes me that getting buy-in from all of the players within the organization who are going to be touched or touch the recruiting or executive recruiting process is probably one of the most critical things to get in place because you need people to be able to interview properly. You need people to be able to move people through, move candidates through the pipeline properly, to set expectations properly. I mean, there are, as I said earlier, a lot of moving parts to this. And so it's, it's a process of education as well inside the organization to really streamline and create a process that works, right? Yeah, exactly. In fact, you touch on a key point there because there are many leaders... Uh, who think, I'm sure and nobody of your listener group has experienced this, I'm sure, but who think they're the best interviewers in the world 
Uh, they're amazing. They know how to. They they're they've got absolutely no qualifying uh, data to show this, but they think they're the best recruiters in the world. They're the best interviewers and the best assessors of talent. But of course, they probably aren't, um, and some of them are terrible. And so, part of the deal we have to do, we have to work with here is is to either get the best and use them only to interview and assess our external talent, or to and or should say to train those who really don't know what they're doing, don't know what they're talking about, which can be a kind of a bit of an ego kick. And remembering we're dealing with probably millionaires, multimillionaires, not that that should make a difference, but people who haven't got where they are today without some level of confidence um, and, uh, and strengthen their convictions. So it's a difficult conversation to have. And this is what we touch on in the other book, uh, is how do we help train, consult with, teach some of these super senior leaders uh, and own our own space in the room as the expert. That's an easy thing to say. Uh, and there are, I'm sure there are many textbooks written about this, but it's really hard. It's, it's, people often say it's, it's not something you can read about, learn, and just go do. It's a kind of an epiphany kind of a thing. But there are some skills and tools that we can build. And that's what the second book is actually about, um, as we call it, consulting skills for recruiters. It's about you know own, owning the space. It's about talking in a business language. It's about consultative questions, empathy, great listening skills, trusted advisorship, those kinds of things. And that's how we, so to go back to your question, that's how we convert some of these business leaders and help them uh, do a better job of assessing and uh, recruiting. Yeah. And we'll get into the trusted advisor thing because that's a theme that's very um, well known on this podcast. I talk about, you know, moving from stranger or recruiter to trusted advisor all the time and how important that is in, in any type of recruiting. Another topic that you just brought up there that I wanted to, that I just wanted to dwell on for a second was, was interviewing. Um, and there's a quote in the book, Leadership Recruiting, that I read, which goes like this. Just because senior execs know how to run a company, it does not mean they also know best practices for running an interview process, which is, I think, basically what you were just saying. Yeah. Um, and for me, you know, the problem with the interview process is how do you... In your world, how do you fairly assess for leadership skills? And how do you reduce subjectivity during the interview process? Yeah, it's, I don't think there's a good answer for that. And I certainly am not the expert. I'm not going to try and pretend to be an assessment expert. Um, however, we got some assessment experts to write some pieces for us, which is lovely. And we have videos upon videos because one of those, that's a, as you can imagine, that's a, um, a hot topic for our members and leaders. And they all want to hear. So we've got multiple people coming and talking about assessment over the years. Um, which is great, uh, but the uh, I suppose the the dip was well, a couple of basic things, right? Uh, they say that interviewing, um, uh, sorry, structured interviews are one of the, if not the best type of assessment module model, as opposed to all these incredible tools. And so, structured interviewing is a key, and that cre one's creating interview guides for that, one's managing the process properly, uh, one's making sure that the various interviewers are asking different questions. And I know this is pretty basic, probably for your audience, but it's kind of the basics, and unless you take those on, you're never going to get further. Um, you know, making sure that if you have five interviewers, each of them are asking a couple of different questions about different competencies. Um, having said that, it's so difficult to remove bias. There's also, I mean, there are, I think, I think it's 154, 144 types of bias that we could touch on. Um, I'm so there's so many, um, but of course there is the simple ones like recency bias. The person we just met. If imagine in a search, a search can take six to eight to twelve weeks to get the candidates to the table. Right. 
the person we just met by default is going to be possibly, or certainly the most recent in your memory, and possibly, therefore, uh, in a better uh, frame or seen in a better light than that you met six weeks ago. It's just a right because you've got a much clearer memory of the experience, exactly, and which is why great note taking, structured interviews, great uh, structured feedback mechanism are so key. Um, and then um, basically also being helping the leaders uh, understand how to understand uh, or how to uh, recognize what they've just heard when they're interviewing somebody, um, and, and more bias. And again, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place here, but more bias that's built in. For instance, uh, I forgot what it's called, but basically it's it's kind of like confirmation bias. All that preamble that we have at the beginning, oh, hey, oh, I see you're wearing a, which is unlikely in exact level, but I see you're wearing a um, university of whatever sweatshirt. Uh, or, oh, my goodness, I see on the back of your wall, you've got a poster from some school or place or college or film that you saw. By default, that is making a connection because people like to do that. It helps everyone feel comfortable. But unfortunately, that therefore bias puts bias, according to some research, on the first couple of answers, if candidate comes in and they find something that clicks with that interviewer, and then they start talking about their alma mater, or they start talking about their best favorite sports team, whatever, by default, the first two answers of the questions, or I'm making these numbers up, but I think it's the first two or three, are effectively useless because the the hiring part or the interviewer is is feeling warmer and more. Um, um, I don't know, uh, uh, friendlier towards this potential candidate, which means that that data is completely biased for the first couple of questions. After that, they start to get more, um, or it starts to become a better set of data. But uh, that, apparently, according to research, those kind of things we can't even take out because we don't be robots, right? Right. It's probably called rapport bias, but I think building rapport in an interview situation is extremely important. Absolutely right. Um, because I think it, it you have to create enough space for a genuine conversation to flourish. And unless you build rapport, you know, the whole thing can be a bit mechanical and robotic. And it's, you know, as right. you say in the book, and one of my favorite expressions is, it's like the, the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. And you don't want that. I mean, when I'm talking to candidates at whatever level they're interviewing at, or I'm helping people understand the interview process, you know, I'm, I'm telling them that it's, it's important for you to, to build rapport and, and to ask good questions up front to, to create that space and, and to have some trust going into the conversation and to turn it into a conversation, not just don't just sit there waiting for the next question. Every time you're asked a question, answer it clearly as you can, but also go back with a question of your own or a clarification that keeps it more like a, t- a tennis match, you know, not just a one-way street. And um, I think there's a lot of tactics as well that people employ in interview situations right now. We've talked about this on the podcast, like, you know, beha- answering behavioral questions using the STAR method. Um, and in your book, you, you mentioned that executives are very good at either revealing or concealing stuff that they don't want or they do want to appear in an interview situation. And, you know, it's quite difficult to get around that as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. And this, I've, I've never been a huge believer in interviews, honestly, because some people interview really, really well and they're amazing at it. They may be an awful employee, but they're really good at interviewing. Um, and that's why I'm a big, we, I mean, I think it's, I'm not, I'm stating the obvious here, but you know, one has to do those kind of things, interviews, but also assessment tools to get some of that hidden material. But then some people are really good at taking assessments. Um, and then one should also do proper referencing. And I say proper, I don't, I don't mean the cat's dog's neighbor's brother's sister that was given to you by the cat. Right. I mean, you know, you're actually doing a proper mechanism. Um, 
uh, of say I have it depending on numbers, but nine who are used to be peers, used to be subordinates, used to be superiors to that particular candidate, for instance, those kinds of things, um, and that's um, those all those pieces of that kind of tools in the toolbox which we have to talk about. But you know, yeah. you, you, you mentioned uh, we talked about bias there for a second. And something else that's been coming up recently, which I've been hearing from our members, which I know is slightly off track, but the bias piece is now uh, we've now got an angle which is slightly different where some clients, or sorry, some leaders might have a bias towards the person that is sitting in front of them in the room as opposed to someone who's on video because some candidates will be able to travel, uh, will feel comfortable traveling, whereas some candidates will be local within 10, 20-mile radius and therefore be more likely to come in for an interview. Right. This is going to cause problems. Yeah, no doubt that that has impacted results. And again, you know, from a degree of subjectivity or objectivity, um, it, it can color the results in, in a way that doesn't always remain fair. And the other thing that you just mentioned was references. Let, let's talk about reference checking for a second. How important do you think reference checking is in the process? And how easy is it for candidates to just, you know, serve up their best referees, people who they know are going to always say good things about them? Yeah, I, I go back and forth. I've always been a fan of references, frankly, more than interviews, actually, is as I was mentioning earlier, uh, there and depending on, of course, the company and the culture, and nowadays, of course, even the country and the region, uh, references have different responses depending who you talk to. And of course, we're, I'm talking now about over, overt references, I suppose, as opposed to backdoor references, which is a whole other topic we can go into as well. But the um, overt references, I suppose, uh, I was always a fan. I would always ask the candidate, and this is just a classic manual process, for the three, the three, and the three. So three support, as I mentioned before, three subordinates, three superiors, and three peers from different organizations. And I would ask them to give me those names. Not I wouldn't take the names they gave me. I would say, I need three, three, and three, um, as opposed to the one or two of three folks that they gave us. And this is me doing this direct um, referencing, not using a search firm. Um, and that's great. And that was my history. And But even with that, there were people who got through the net, and we just didn't find information even without, you know, even with doing all that uh, exercise. Uh, and nowadays, I know that, um, or not, not even nowadays, it was a while back, I heard that one of our members told us that they actually got sued. So this is a back and forth here. I'm going to kind of give you the pros and cons. One of our members told us in the US, they got sued by a candidate that didn't get a job, and they got sued for, to disclose all the information that was given in the reference process um, so they could find out who gave a bad reference, um, which therefore caused a nightmare for that company. And that company therefore chose by the legal department for them never to do references again because it caused such a challenge for them. I've heard others where, of course, if you put references, uh, or sorry, if, some, if the company takes references, all that data is technically disclosable. I think that's part of the GDPR thing, probably. I don't know exactly how that works. But that's a potential issue, uh, which therefore have to we have to anonymize all the references, I'm assuming is the way to go. And now there are companies I hear about, uh, we've had a couple of them talk to us, where they will ask, just like I did, for the three, three, and three, but they'll have the candidate send those invitations to the external person uh, who might be the referee. Um, and then that, that separate sort of third-party company will collect all the data and then package it together anonymously so that the, me as a client and the um, candidate don't see that information and they don't know who's giving it. It's just a kind of an anonymous package. So there are a couple of companies solving for these problems now. Uh, and we've had a couple of them talk to us. And that's kind of interesting. Uh, if you still believe in references, 
Um, as you say, I never believe in the, oh, give me three references. Who are your best friends? No, we're not going to do that. Having said that, once I've asked for those three, three, and three, you'll find, well, I've actually hired some of my best hires from those referees because, of course, they're as good as the talent we were trying to hire in the first place, very likely. So chances are they're actually going to be a great candidate. And I've actually hired at least one uh, from that reference set, and others have been potential network com- communication conversations after that. And there are ways of doing references, you know. I mean, you're asking for the you're asking for positive things. Um, you're asking for how do we develop this candidate uh, or this potential hire? What if what what did you work with them on if they were their boss, perhaps? Um, and what were you working with that candidate on to help them improve? Uh, so it's not it's not a select out. It's more of a how do we help this person become better? How do we help? Yeah, this person that's a nice really way grow? of framing it. Yeah, yeah. But I I think it's even. Certainly in California, I believe, there's certain questions you're not supposed to ask and there's certain things that you're not supposed to reveal. And I think I'm, I'm not 100% certain on this. Do you, do you happen to know about any of the legalities of reference checking? Because I think, you know, giving opinions on people and giving an opinion that might prevent them from getting that job might not be legal. And you could Yeah, it's very that, possible. Yeah? It's very possible. I do know that a number of organizations basically won't do, won't give or won't take and won't ask for references anymore. All they'll say is, yes, employee started on day one and employee left on day 10, uh, or hopefully day 300. Right. right. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, that's the only thing they're, they're able, able to give by, uh, by order of the legal department. But so very plausible. I don't know. Um, I haven't heard that, but it's not, not far from likely. Um, but that's interesting what you're saying about you would hire the people that you were seeking the references from, because on the agency side, that's often the case as well. If you call somebody up as a reference and, and ask them about your potential candidate and you sort of develop a little bit of rapport with them over that 10 or 15 minutes of that conversation. And then as an agency recruiter, you might at the end of that conversation say, hey, by the way, how do you go about you know, recruiting software engineers? And, and it's a way in the back door, so to speak, because you sort of built that, that rapport and even showcased some of your process from a reference-taking standpoint. So yeah. that, that's interesting. A lot of good it's things It's a classic can come biz from. dev tool. Yeah, It exactly. is a biz dev tool. It's a yeah. classic biz dev tool. Yeah. It's, uh, it certainly is. But um, back door references, have you got anything to say about them, positive, negative? Well, they're always risky, right? Because especially if you're doing yeah. a direct hire, because there's no hiding who the client is. Um, so the ideal to do that kind of, I mean, when I'm doing a, if I'm in-house and I'm doing a direct hire, I can't say, oh, I work for Google, Microsoft or whatever. And then they're saying, oh, well, is this, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's very obvious who is being potentially talked about and what the potential company or the, the direction is. Whereas a search firm, candidly, is a lot easier for them because they could represent hundreds of different clients. So there's a little less um, confidentiality probably at risk there. Um, the ideal, I think, is that these are not at the moment references, uh, backdoor references. So, you know, if we tie it back to this conversation we had earlier about external succession planning and pipelining, if we know the top 100 people that we want to bring into our organization over the next one to three to five years, then we slowly just build a kind of a dossier or a file in our CRM or whatever about these top 100 people. We're just literally gathering information about them from people who used to know them who are inside people who, you know, who used to know them who are on the outside. Um, and it's not about, oh, I'm hiring this CXO job or this chief engineering role or whatever, um, and I need to get a reference on candidate A. 
then that's just a bit too transactional and it's a bit too obvious. Whereas if we're kind of gathering information and data over the course of the next year or two over these top 100 hires, potential hires or prospects, then that's the ideal. Um, and there is what we call calibrations in the book, which is a variation on references. It's where you sit down. So, for instance, you're targeting uh, all the senior leaders. and not targeting, but you're, you want to know about all the senior leaders at your competitor. Well, then what you do is you sit down and have a virtual pizza these days, probably, or maybe now back to real pizza, with all the senior leaders who used to work at that competitor who now work at your company. And you take in the top 500, 200 um, org chart, senior level org chart, and you sit at that table around the pizza and you've got, say, 10 people who used to work at this competitor and now work for your company. You're sitting around the table and you're going through that top 200 organizational chart from competitor A, whatever, um, and you're saying, hey, what would you think about that person? Would you work with them again? What do you know about them? What's the history? And you're gathering all that data. And again, this is a long-term, over time, this is where it takes sponsorship, it takes funding, it takes resources. But it's a programmatic methodology. Um, and that's how you gather data on that top 100 that you really want to hire over the next couple of years from both internal talent that you already know who used to work with them and external talent as well. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like a, a fair and a, and a data-driven way, obviously, of doing it. What scares me about backdoor references is when you're taking the opinion of a stranger, because not all relationships are good and people leave companies for a reason. And so therefore you might be taking, you know, the opinion of a stranger who raises a red flag over, you know, the assessment of your internal interview team or panel. Well, that's and true. I think now, you need to trust your own judgment first. I, I think that's fair. And remembering also that one, the in-house teams are over time going to build a network and a connection of folks that they trust over time, who may not be candidates, maybe candidates one day, but they're going to know a set of leaders across the industry and usually a relatively narrow industry uh, over the period of time where they built the muscle in this kind of this special function that they're recruiting, whatever it might be. So they're going to have a network of people they trust. That's one. Um, but two, you're absolutely right. One never takes one point of reference. It's always triangulated. And if one hears something negative, uh, then that's, that point is triangulated, not just the references, not just three references, but every negative point should be triangulated with three others or two other uh, perspectives to see what went on in that scenario or what their opinion of this particular challenge was. And then to your point again, uh, frankly, if all the references are rosy, that's a red flag to me. Because one doesn't get to be a senior leader, again, multi-million dollar people, or, or not that, maybe not that much either, but one doesn't get to be a senior leader without making decisions that not, they don't have to be rude, uh, arrogant, annoying, or bad decisions, but you're always going to have somebody who's not going to be happy with those decisions. Hopefully they were done respectfully and properly uh, and for the right reasons, but no one's going to be happy all the time. Otherwise, they're probably not a good leader. I'm not going to try and pretend I'm an expert, but that's what I would assume. So you know what also you don't want super glossy shiny references either. You want a bit of gray in there. Um and that's important. But you're absolutely right. Always triangulate any point that one gets. Um uh, because it's a sensible thing to do. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense. And um it reminds me of something else you had in the book. Is this the same or related thing that you wrote in the book called the recruiter's bizarre life triangle? No, I just have a thing about triangles. No, it's just a <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, a wee poem that I wrote uh, for some weird reason. I don't know why I thought it was a clever idea to write a poem. But anyway, it's a poem, and I call it, it's supposed to be BLT. It's a bizarre life triangle, right? Right. Um, and Hold it's the because, 
<laughs> exactly. Um, we, uh, we as an in-house recruiter, specifically, this is targeting particularly the in-house recruiter and especially the senior one, uh, but actually, frankly, any in-house recruiter, we have this interesting place that we walk alongside or inside this triangle because we, we are working with the client, we're advising the client, who's the hiring manager probably, um, and, but not everything they say is right and not everything they say is the law, as it were, because sometimes they'll want to do something slightly different to what the organizational um, needs are. Uh, for instance, uh, and this is often probably not the case, but it used to be in the old days, client wants to hire someone right now, they're urgently trying to get someone in, the, in that job, uh, they've got revenues falling or they've got product needs to be shipped. They don't care if it's this white guy they've known for 20 or 30 years. They just want to put that person in. They trust them, know them and everything else. The organizational has uh, the organizational needs are different. They have a need for underrepresented talent. They have a need for future thinking talent or a different, a broader perspective uh, around competencies or whatever it might be. And so that may not be necessarily in uh, unison those two points of view may not be in unison as it were so one has to balance those two points of the triangle as an internal recruiter on one level and then you've got the third the third point of the triangle which is the candidate one's an advocate for the candidate in-house because one is trying to get that candidate in as happy and be the right and the most effective and for a long-term career hopefully and that's great but one also has to negotiate with that candidate on behalf of the organization you, you don't want to give away the farm um, and so you got to do the right thing by the candidate, but for the organization, the right thing for the organization, but for, by the client and the candidate, and the right thing for the hiring manager or the client, um, as well as the candidate and the organization. So it, it's that it's an interesting triangular tightrope, which makes some sense. But that's where I uh, that's where I wrote the. the uh, I get it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, we're definitely pulled from pillar to post, trying to serve you know sometimes many different masters when exactly. we're in the recruiting process or managing the recruiting process. Um, do you want to just finish up? I know trusted advisorship was something that we touched on earlier. Do you just want to finish up with um, your sort of opinion on, on how and why um, we as recruiters, whether you're internal or external, need to position ourselves as trusted advisors in this, in this complicated recruiting process? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm frankly, when I've uh, written about this in the book or we talk about it, we borrow from or draw from David Meister a lot as you've probably seen in the book. Um, David Mason wrote a bunch of books about consulting, and one in particular is called The Trusted Advisor. And so we've drawn on that material, and he's got some great stuff in there. And frankly, the second book, uh, the Consulting Skills book, uh, is we make it very clear that one should go. We recommend not just his book. We've got actually four pages of reference material uh, in the back. Um, Peter, I think it's Peter Block. Anyway, Flawless Consulting. There's a whole bunch of articles, web pages, books that we reference people should go off and study and other things because it's really more of a taster but when it comes to trusted advisorship yeah we we draw on that material um but we kind of talk about how uh, as a recruiter one's delivering candidates fast they all the client wants as a basic solid recruiter is that they want candidates and they want them quickly whereas if we do what we are supposed to be doing uh, which is get the best talent for the organization back to the the, the uh, triangle thing again um, sometimes we'll have to bring that talent together with the hiring manager in the um, the most effective way, and um, but not necessarily the fastest way. So we're not always all delivering as quickly as possible. We're delivering uh, the highest quality um, and in a timely fashion. The ideal is also we're called in earlier in the process, which is the best. 
Then if we go up the kind of that spectrum, uh, we start to bring, as we go up that kind of trusted advisor spectrum, we start to bring uh, challenge information, market information, competitive information to that conversation set, to the conversation with the client or even the HR leaders. Um, we're doing all we're supposed to be doing. So recruiting in a timely fashion, but we're bringing that inf- information intelligence to the conversation. And frankly, we're helping them look better in front of their bosses. And then we go to the very end, and this is where that life triangle comes back in. We're also pushing back towards, as we get to the higher end of the trusted advisorship, we're pushing back on the client and saying, no, we can't hire this person right now because there is this bigger um, you know, 10,000 foot model we've got to look at first before we can go out and just hire the person you know your, your next door neighbor um, so there's you know we might have diversity plans change agendas we might have uh, all sorts of different things that we have to think about succession and so on so that's where we're going so it's not just about recruiting and recruiting quickly it's about thinking about bigger broader picture it's about uh having all sorts of different uh leadership perspectives uh when we when we're having these conversations and, yeah um, that's key no absolutely right and i think when you achieve trusted advisor status you're no longer pushing your agenda you're actually genuinely solving problems whether it's for a client or a candidate but if you don't ever go there and really find out what the needs goals and desires of that individual or part of the organization is then it's impossible to sort of reconcile a solution that makes sense and you just end up being a salesperson yeah, exactly. You're basically just a body broker. Whereas you, you build trust by talking their language, by understanding their business. And this is, and we've got some great quotes in the second book by folks, you know, Rupesh, in fact, Uber, you know, other folks as well. Um, you know, they talk about how we should get to know the town, we should get to know the business problems, we should get to know where people are moving around, what's going on, and that kind of a thing. And Meister talks about intimacy. Um, and we get to the point as a trusted advisor where they the, the client starts to share information with us that they wouldn't share even with their directs perhaps or certainly not with a big business group because they're sharing with us for instance information about how you know i'm thinking of retiring in three or four years this hire should possibly be a, or could possibly be a successor or i'm thinking about uh moving this person on because they're not doing as well as i as they could so this new hire perhaps could take on two different roles you know, maybe that sort of a thing, where they won't share that with their senior leadership or they're certainly not the larger group. And they'll share that with us because we have that confidence and that, that uh, as I said, that trusted advisorship. We own that space, which is important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, you've got a great client or a great candidate when you're having those level of, of intimate conversations. Correct. Um, Simon Mullins, my old mate, thank you so much for coming along to the 100th episode of Recruiting Trailblazers today and having a nice little fireside chat with me and I uh, hope we get a chance to tackle the second book sometime soon. Um, but it's great to see you and have another chat with you. And um, as I say, thanks for being on the podcast. You're a great sport and I'll speak to you again soon. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. See you hopefully somewhere in the world. Take care. Okay, mate. Cheers. Cheers.